That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Kevin Blackestone, one of my Around the Horn panel buddies, is going to join me for today's show. We'll get to that interview in just a second. Wanted to tell you a quick story that had me thinking. So this weekend, I was in Orlando for Blog Her 17 a big conference focusing on female writers, creators, bloggers, etc. So I spoke on Saturday. I had a fantastic panel. But on Friday, I got in early to interview Serena Williams and listen to her keynote. So she did an interview with the president of She Knows Media, which is uh, the company that runs Blogger. And it was really interesting. I was a little worried because she was speaking on behalf of um, the State Farm Initiative Purple Purse, which I love um, it, it tackles the idea of the financial aspects of domestic violence, and 99% of domestic violence cases uh, have some sort of financial issue, whether that's uh, the abuser trying to prevent access to funds, trying to prevent access to jobs, uh, whatever it is, oftentimes uh, abused women or men fail to leave relationships because financially they're not sure what their next step is. And so the Purple Purse Project helps offer up solutions for people to help others and to find help yourself if you're in a situation and you're trying to leave. Uh, So she was speaking about becoming a new ambassador, but she also talked about joining the board for SurveyMonkey and and kind of dipping her toes in the waters of Silicon Valley. Uh, Some of the lessons that she learned from her parents and that she's taking on with her as she anticipates the birth of her first child. Uh, she's engaged. She's got a lot going on. And, and I liked hearing her speak about her life off of the tennis court, because if she's going to be away from continuing to break those records and win those grand slams, I think she's finding a lot of purpose in the time off and, and what she can do while she's away from the court. Uh, but after her speech, I had a chance to very briefly interview her just about five minutes alongside uh, one of the women from All States Purple Purse. And she was very nice. She was you know, able to answer my questions. She's very soft-spoken, which is such a funny sort of balance when you're used to seeing her just dominate people on the court. Uh, she's actually very sp- soft-spoken when when she talks. Um, but I have to admit, I didn't feel any connection with her at all. I feel as though she was very much um, answering in sort of sound bites. She knew what she was there to talk about. She had her answer sort of ready to go. And I never felt this humanity between us that I that I feel with even people who aren't super in, into getting interviewed or in a bad mood or whatever it is. And I wondered if there's a sort of delineation. And I was talking to a friend of mine who works in the industry after the interview, and we were kind of just hashing this out. A delineation between the athletes that came before the 24-hour news cycle, Twitter, social media, and our deep, deep obsession with, with celebrity um, and those that came after. And it's not to say that athletes in the 70s or 80s weren't popular and beloved and sought out by fans or media, but there was a there was a distance there. And celebrities weren't these deities that they are now. There was not the Kim Kardashians of the world, the Us Weekly and stuff like that. It just wasn't this obsession. And I think there are athletes that Jeremy Roenick's, the Charles Barkley's, that are very honest and very open and are not really worried about being their true, authentic, and genuine selves, even if sometimes what they say makes people mad. And then there are athletes of today where I think they're so aware of constantly being criticized for everything they say and do, of always being under the microscope with phones and cameras everywhere, um, that the connection between the fan and the athlete has changed a lot. 
That's not all of them. There are certainly plenty of major athletes now that I think do a remarkable job considering, um, and other celebrities too, that do a remarkable job considering the microscope that's on them of trying to be normal and of still being able to interact and and be a normal person. Um, but I just did a feature for um, I. It's not running till July, but I did a feature for Sunday Night Baseball on the Bleacher Bums, and listening to these stories from Mike Murphy, who's one of the original Bleacher Bums, about how not only did the the, the Cubs outfielders know them by name, but they'd come to the to the bar right next to Wrigley after the game and drink beers and and arm wrestle and hang out, and they were all friends. And you just don't see that these days. It's really difficult, I think, to have a deep connection that same way between fans and athletes as it used to be. And some of it's stuff you can't help, and and some of it's the way that the coverage is now. Um, But in talking to Serena, like I said, she was really nice. It just felt so distant. And I wondered if she might always be like that in interviews because she's so burnt from people criticizing her body or her cornrows or her play or her mouth when she's on the court or whatever it is. And that made me sad um, because I feel like she probably has a lot of personality under there that I didn't get to see. Um, but I also understood it. And it, it also reminded me to be more aware of the challenges that these athletes have. Guys like LeBron James, who every single word out of his mouth is so broken down and criticized and, and analyzed. Um, but it was very cool to meet her. It was very cool to talk with her. Um, and it just gave me a little bit reminder again of what it can be like these days to have to deal with the expectations of always saying and doing the right thing. And also made me sort of nostalgic for a time when maybe that, that barrier between our celebrities and ourselves wasn't quite so big for their sake too, because I think it's not just about fans wanting to have that real connection, but I think for celebrities and athletes, maybe it's getting harder and harder for them to just be normal and for all of the pressure and the eyeballs and the and the, and the attention not to change them in ways where they can't really recapture who they were before it. Anyway, just something I'm thinking about. My interview with Kevin Blackestone coming up right after this. That's what she said. More that's what she said in a minute. But first, I want to hear from you. Whether you're new to the pod or you've been listening for quite some time, I want to know how you think I'm doing. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, leave me a rating and a review. And if you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribed so we're easy to find next time. If you write a great review, if you say something funny or amazing, maybe I'll read it on the pod. Why don't you go to Apple and leave one and see what happens? And if you subscribe to the ESPN app, we can send you an alert whenever a new episode hits. So that's awesome, too. You can always tweet me your thoughts at Sarah Spain, Sarah with an H, Spain like the country, and let me know what you're thinking. Who do you want to hear on the pod? What do you like? All that jazz. That's what she said. Happy now to welcome Kevin Blackestone, national sports columnist for The Washington Post, panelist on ESPN's Around the Horn, a contributor to NPR, and an author as well. But I was trying to remember, Kevin, have we ever met in person? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, uh, have. I don't have any recollection, no, because I don't travel like I used to, and you are often on the road. So, uh, no, just via uh, plasma screens. But that's cool. Although, yeah, with all the pre and mid and post at around the horn, it kind of feels like you're hanging out in person with the people, just chatting. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, but I'm happy to have you on, and I'm happy to learn more about you. My my pod is oftentimes uh, 
starts out a lot with how you became who you are. I'm fascinated with what led to people uh, becoming successes in whatever it is they pursue. So let's start mm-hmm. way, way, way back. What were you? Uh, what was the professor like as a kid? What was the professor like as a kid? Um, I was uh, uh, very active. Um, I grew up in a uh, in a uh, working class household, two parents working, and in our neighborhood, that meant that kids were at the playground um, in the boys and girls club, which included bowling every nice. Saturday for probably about from age about seven till about fifteen, um, and then playing uh, you know a variety of sports and and. Uh, you know, going to school and, um, you know, grew up in a great neighborhood, uh, which now has a, uh, all the kids that grew up here, we all have a, uh, an annual, um, reunion picnic. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah. On one of the playgrounds we used to, uh, play baseball and football on. So, you know, it was great growing up in DC and just outside of DC. And yeah, that's, uh, grew that's up a remarkable connection. Band. To keep yeah, to, to yeah. not be connected you know, a by kids. a school or something, but by just the neighborhood. That's great. Yep. Yep. So does that still mean you're a still in Maryland? Yeah. You're a great bowler still. Well, um, I haven't I haven't bowled in uh, quite some time, and now when I bowl, it's just it's extremely recreational. You know, somebody <laughs> will say, "Hey, let's go to the bowling alley." Yeah. And uh, when I say bowling here, that means if you're from the East Coast, that means duck pin. That doesn't. Oh, mean okay. Pin. So yeah, when you so were a kid, we you were playing duck pin. Oh, absolutely. Okay. We're doing, doing duck pin. And I think in uh, Chicago, in some bars, don't they have duck pin? They or might. Pin pin? They might. I know um, I tried it once out east with my sister's husband when we were out there visiting his family. But uh, that was it. It was just one and done. I'll have to try again. I don't know if I've yeah. had yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, duck here. pin bowling was uh, huge here. We used to participate in interstate uh, tournaments. Um, and here's one for you. Um Duckpin bowling also used to be on television here. They used to have a thing called uh, uh, bowling, duckpins for dollars or whatever. (laughs) And it was like a 30-minute game show that people could get on and and, uh, show their duckpin bowling skills. So, yeah. Something I I would not have guessed. Yes. Okay, so what (laughs) other sports were we into as a kid? Everything. I mean, unlike today where kids get specialized as soon as they get out the womb, um, you know, we just went by the seasons, baseball, football, basketball, um, track and field in the summer. Uh, everything got meshed together, and, um, you know, everybody played. And we played a lot of pickup, too. I mean, we would play pickup football, pickup basketball, of course, um, pickup baseball. And one of the best things that ever happened in our neighborhood was when they built a new wing on our elementary school um, because they, when they built it, they put um, security lights on it because it created a little, uh, it created a little um, yard, and uh, which was great for us because that meant we could play football under the lights. Nice. So, so yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of your normal uh, pickup sports around here. Were you any good? Did you play things all through through high school? I played everything all the way through high school. Wow. Um, I. Uh, uh, although I, by the time I got to high school, I mixed it up. So I played football my freshman year. I got tired of it. Didn't play that again until senior year. In between, played uh, uh, basketball freshman year. Ran track and field junior and senior year. <laughs> um, played JV. That's baseball. really weird. Um, Was it? Yeah, you I mean, got I bored. Did... You lost focus, or? Uh, yeah, 
I just got tired of football. I've been played it played it all my life, and then by the time I was uh, a senior, I missed it, so I went back out and played again. It was, huh. and it was great fun. But you know, maybe I saved a couple brain cells. Yeah. No. No <laughs> college recruiting. No aspirations to play in college. No, nothing. No, nothing like that. A little bit uh, too small. I remember uh, I got a form letter from Union College in Schenectady, New York, saying that uh, if you're interested in continuing playing uh, <laughs> football at a college, come to, come come to Union College nice. we'll, and try out for our team. But no, 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 absolutely not. When I got to the Big Ten at Northwestern, I was uh, uh, I was uh, amazed at how big guys could actually yeah. be. Um, what what so. position were you? I was a uh, defensive back. Um, actually, by my senior year, I was a monster back, which is a hybrid defensive back linebacker. Huh. <laughs> so I was going to say, you had wheels, but you didn't really. You had you had enough speed, right. but you I were also, yeah. A lot of lateral movement, a little bit of speed. I was a sprinter. Um, you know, we had a, we had a good, we had a good track team. We, uh, we won our conference uh, junior and senior year, and I think we came in I think in private schools, one year we came in second or third in the state, which is nice. pretty good. So, yeah, it was good. It was, it was a lot of fun. Were you I dreaming of working in sports when you were an athlete kid, or what was the dream then? No, 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 no. I, I wanted to be a journalist, but I had I I had no desire to uh, to be a sports journalist. That was not that was not my thing. I was a um, uh, I was a newspaper boy, and not only that, I was also. Um, uh, our our household was very political. My father was a um, uh, community organizer when he wasn't doing his day job, and uh, uh, he's one of these guys who always write letters, you know, guest guest uh, columns to local newspapers and letters mm-hmm. to the editor. He's very so. This was a very vibrant political um, household, which meant I was steeped in news, current events, um, history uh, from as long as I can remember, and so. When Watergate happened, um, I was just I was mesmerized, yeah. and that was when I said, "You know what? I want to be a journalist," and started oh. pursuing it. Then didn't know what I didn't know how to pursue it, but um, my father knew some people at the Washington Post. There was another guy by the name of uh, Rich Adams who was an editorial director for um, Channel Nine here in D.C. who was a friend of my father's. So I, I would get to go down there and watch him do the newscast from time to time, and you know, slowly but surely, kind of figured the thing out and wound up at Northwestern as a journalism student, and um, been doing it ever since. So, what did your parents do for work? My father worked for the post office. My mother was a uh, secretary for the labor department in the government. Oh, okay. So, uh, a very typical D.C. household with both parents work for work for the government or some some tangential operation of the government. Right. So you go to Northwestern, uh, and were you there for undergrad, and also did you get your, your master's there? No, I just did, no, I just did graduate. Just, I mean, I, I just did undergraduate. So undergrad. I, was there in, uh, I was there from 77 to 81, which was one of the worst runs of collegiate football in the history of collegiate football. <laughs> um, basketball wasn't much, wasn't much better, although in 1979 they somehow beat – uh, the Michigan State team that year um, when they rolled through Evanston, led by Magic Johnson. Don't know how that happened, huh. um, but, but it did. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, you know, Northwestern was great. I mean, it was it was. I went there sight unseen. 
Um, but I wanted to be in a big city. I wanted to be at a place with a reputable um, uh, journalism school. Uh, obviously, Northwestern was that. Um, yeah, I wanted to be near a black city. Um, I wanted to be someplace where they had a black student body that was active. Yeah. And uh, Northwestern meet, and they, they met all of those uh, requirements for me. We're going to have to add you to the list with Tim Kalistraw for people who, who look and act younger than they are, because the fact that you were in college before I was born kind of blows my mind. You <laughs> skew very young, just like Kalishaw. Meanwhile, Woody skews like 20 years older than he is. But <laughs> as far as ATH goes, I, I didn't realize that you were... Yep. Uh, yep, I've been around for a minute. Yeah. But yeah. I wasn't, you know, like I said, I wasn't, or, or you alluded to, I wasn't, uh, you know, I was... I was focused on news. I wasn't yeah. really focused on sports. I did some sports um, in Chicago. In fact, you may you may be familiar with the Learner newspapers, which was a community-based newspaper chain in Chicago. I don't even know if they're still around. But huh. they were, I mean, when I was in school, they were great. So I never wrote for the Daily Northwestern, which was a college newspaper, which is uh, pretty famous. But I worked for the Learner newspapers. You jumped and, ahead. Uh, you went pro. Yeah, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it, would, it would pay you like twenty five, thirty bucks a story. Nice. You know, and yeah, you know, I'd go out and just I covered everything, covered everything. So that was uh, it was a great it was a great laboratory, and I absolutely loved Chicago. I still yeah. love it. It's yeah. uh, it is uh, it is my home away from home. So how'd you end up at the Boston Globe then? Um, my, uh, junior year, I had an internship at the Boston Globe and, uh, uh, I did pretty well. And, uh, the next year, uh, when I graduated, they offered me, uh, a job and, uh, I tried not to take it because <laughs> my, um, my senior year at Northwestern, I worked at the Chicago Reporter, which is a, uh, monthly, at the time was a monthly, newsletter that investigated racial and social issues in Chicago and it was it was like it was just great working there and I learned so much and I wanted to stay but it was a not-for-profit and they didn't have a uh, they couldn't get a grant to keep me on for um, uh, after graduation so I fell back on the globe <laughs> and uh, it's a went good back fallback. there and you know I was working <laughs> I was working on the uh, working on the news side and uh, one of my um, uh, one of my great mentors to this day uh, was a woman named Eileen McNamara, who um, retired there as a columnist. But if you see the movie Spotlight, mm -hmm. um, in the opening scene uh, where they're kicking around this story idea about um, uh, priests um, molesting uh, boys, um, she's the one that kind of brought the story to the fore in a column and the uh marty the guy playing marty baron at the time um uh gestures to eileen sitting in the back of the uh editorial room um basically saying uh you know thank you eileen for for getting the story out here huh that's great so you yeah. were only there for a couple years though and then you came back to chicago yeah, I um, I uh, quit the Globe and went to uh, grad school at BU, um, basically blowing off like a year just reading and writing and arguing in class, which is a lot of fun. Did you I feel like you needed that, that, that grad experience? 
Um, no, no, not at all. I, I, I tell people that if you've, if, you've, if you've got an undergraduate journalism degree, you do not need a graduate journalism degree. And mine was actually in journalism and history, but that's another story. But the reason I did it was because, um, uh, because I liked academia, and there was this guy there named Henry, Henry Labrie, and he ran some special journalism program. And he kept he was badgering me to mm-hmm. come to this this master's program, and uh, you know basically they offered a full ride plus a stipend, and I was like, well, I got a little bit of money in the bank from working. I can always come back to the Globe. You know that's when newspaper jobs, if you were any good, were pretty plentiful. You had your yeah. pick, and uh, so I decided basically I, I saw it as a year off to do what I wanted to do. And uh, hang out, and you know, I'd go to class and play a lot of play a lot of pickup ball in the Fins and Roxbury and Mattapan, um, Brookline, and uh, Northeastern. We used to play in Northeastern on on uh, Saturday mornings in their gym, BU. And you know, I just had a good time, and yeah. um, and so that was, that was really the only reason I went to grad school. Um, and then after grad school, I got right back into business. So you're in Chicago and you're doing work on racial and social issues. Then you go to the yep. Dallas Morning News, general assignment. Then you do yep. the business page, doing economics. 1990, yep. you got Nelson Mandela coverage you've completed, and that's when you yep. moved to sports. So what was it about that time period that, that moved you to the sports page? Um, it was uh, really was happenstance. I had been in Dallas for five years, and I thought that was long enough, and I was mulling over a couple of job offers at the Washington Post and USA Today to cover economics, and the sports editor, Dave Smith, the legendary Dave Smith at the Dallas Morning News, um, had he had just lost one of his columnists, a guy named David Cass Stevens, left to go to Arizona. And so he had an opening, and uh, he decided to really diversify uh, his columnist ranks. And he, he promoted two of his writers, Kathy Arasta, and a younger writer at the time named Kevin Sherrington, the columnist, and then he approached me to come over and be a columnist and, and also to cover the, the business of sports, which I had done for, for the sports page once in a while. Um, and uh, originally I, um, I said, no, thank you, but uh, after talking to some people about it, um, particularly Will Bond, who was a friend of mine from Northwestern, Clarence Page, uh, the Chicago Tribune Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, who um, was my first journalism instructor at at Northwestern and a longtime mentor, and Brian Burwell, the late Brian Burwell, who uh, was a columnist at the time in either in Detroit or USA Today, I can't remember which. Um, I talked to them and talking to them for advice as to whether or not to take a columnist job is like. Asking a crack addict, should you do crack? Of course, <laughs> <laughs> of course you should. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I I took the job, and after a year, I was just doing columns. Yeah. So ever since. when you went to Boston, Chicago, Dallas, was a part of you wanting to travel and move, or was it simply a matter of opportunity or, or salary? Because that, that's a no, lot of movement it was, at, it was, in a short amount of time. That. I mean, I uh, I went to. Um, I went to Dallas because my girlfriend at the time was was uh, was uh, working in San Francisco, and she moved to Dallas. Ah, uh, okay. And she said, and she said, if you don't move to Dallas, we're, we're done. 
<laughs> I was like, uh, okay. So <laughs> I went down to Dallas and applied to uh, the three newspapers at the time, um, the other two being the Dallas Times-Herald and the Forward Star-Telegram. And uh, I actually had an in at the um, Dallas Times-Herald. It's funny how things work. And I was kind of just waiting for their new editor, who was going to be Shelby Coffey third. Um, to take over the reins, and he had promised me a job. Meanwhile, um, the morning news offered me a job, and I couldn't wait any longer, and I took the job at huh. the morning news, and the Dallas Times-Herald in a few short years was out of business. <laughs> so, wow. There you go. Twist of fate, there you go. Um, yep. So when you when when you started the first couple of years of, of writing sports and, and business of sports, I'm sure you loved having a column and, and a regular role and a voice. Uh, did you love the the content, the, what sports offered you right away, or was it gradual? No, no, I loved it. I mean, because I was a big sports fan anyway, um, uh, and I, you know, I always read sports. I grew up reading Shirley Povich and David Israel, and um, when I was in Chicago, I used to read John Shulian, and so uh, no, I always I always loved sports. There was more content then you could really tackle the problem for me was um you know obviously i was i was getting a plum job um where people on the sports page generally um get elevated to right and i was coming in i was coming in the side door right um and number 2 as much as i love sports one of the th- important things i think about sports coverage is the historical font that people have, and I did not have that. I mean, I knew some history, but most history I had to look up, and so that took some, you know, that took some catching up. And then covering sports, just the rhythm of covering sports, is a lot different than news, because sports you're immersed in the same thing each and every day. Where if you're covering news, you know, one day you're you're going left, the next day you're going right. You you have no idea what you know, what, what the change is going to be. Um, but in sports, you know, there's a lot of time spent cultivating sources on teams and, and that kind of thing. So it was <clears throat> it was considerably different. And then writing a column for the first time, you know, you, you, you find yourself, at least I did in the beginning, imitating poorly um, people that you read and then struggling – um, to eventually find your voice and your mm-hmm. own rhythm and your own comfort zone. So you know, there was a lot of it. There was a lot of adjustment. It took me any number, any number of years before I was comfortable doing what I was doing. So you're there for 16 years, and then mm-hmm. 2006, 2007. The world is changing. Blogs are getting bigger, but they're not yep. still really given access the same way yet. At least not the smaller ones. It's really no, up to not the ones at all. affiliated maybe with uh, with something else that might get some of that access. Um, when you went to AOL Fan House, was that a forced move? Was that a, a newspaper needing uh, needing to cut people? No, that was well. Um, in 2006, the uh, Morning News came out with its first significant uh, buyouts, and it was company wide. And uh, so I had this buyout sitting on the table. And um, I'd been there 20 years, which was 15 longer than I had planned. Um, they had started to freeze 401k matching. Um, and I knew from being a business writer that the first buyout you get offered is always going to be the best. 
And so I kind of looked around the landscape. Uh, my father died a couple years earlier, and I thought, you know, I need to get back home and, and mm. uh, take care of my mother or, or at least be around. And uh, so in the 24th hour, I punched the button and sent in my um, – uh, sent in my uh, okay to take the uh, to take the buyout, and uh, took my sack of money. Came back to D.C. Cooled out. I was back and forth. Cooled out for a year. Worked on a couple projects. And, Still with the uh, girlfriend. Uh, this was. Oh, I was at this time. I was divorced. Okay, so, so the girlfriend <laughs> turned into a wife. But no, then you left no, her in Dallas. did not turn into a wife. Oh, <laughs> can't keep <laughs> the up. Girlfriend's, the girlfriend's <laughs> last name at the time was Wright, and she became wrong. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> she got you to Dallas, though, where you had a good run, so we'll give her that. <laughs> right. Had a good run, and yeah. then I got married and been divorced. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So, right, I, so you're uh, a free man back in I'm D.C. A, yeah, with a sack exactly. full of money. <laughs> exactly, with a sack full of money. You know, so these are the I, good years. Yeah, I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm like, what more can what could go wrong? So um, while I'm here, um, I got approached by uh, a couple of different, like, you know, a newspaper called me. I mean, a bunch of people called me, brought me in for interviews, trying to see if, you know, I could fit in. Um, and then um, a guy I knew at AOL called me, and he said, hey, would you be interested in writing a, column, a sports column like once a week for AOL? I was like, eh, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll try that, and uh, you know, a column once a week became two columns a week. Next thing you know, they're saying, "Hey, would you go to the AFC Championship game? Would you go to the Super Bowl? Would you do this?" And you know, I don't know how long it took, but like within a year, maybe a little bit more, AOL had decided to put together a full-blown um, sports website. Mm-hmm. Uh, which of course became known as Fan House, and uh, next thing I know, I'm surrounded by all manner of people, and it's back to normal. And I'm writing four times a week and traveling around the country and around the world, and it was a great ride. And really working with some great people, many of whom now are sprinkled throughout um, ESPN, uh, throughout Fox, um, and elsewhere around the country. I mean, it was a great group of people and you were writing at the same time uh a sports column for something called emerge well Um, no no i was writing i did emerge emerge was um i did emerge i think in the late 90s when i was when i was still at the morning news and emerge was um it was a uh uh a monthly black magazine on um politics and culture and it was great, and it was very strident. It was run by a guy named uh, George Curry, um, who was really good and died a couple years ago. Um, and once again, some really uh, cool people who, who freelance and wrote regularly for it. And, uh, yeah, so I wrote a sports column there for about um, about three years in addition to what I was doing at the, uh, at the morning news. Would you say that sort of political and social issue interest is a through line wherever you worked? Not necessarily every column, but that that was something that you'd come back to and would inspire you to write a lot on those issues? Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, no question about that. I mean, that's my whole interest in in sports is that is that intersection. And uh, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, being able to do that at, at Emerge was, um, 
you know, was 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 pretty cool. Um, and I did it at some other outlets from time to time too. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my that's my interest, and I think you know, I think over time I've kind of carved out a niche um, in that uh, where so many other people and even websites um, have grown up and have started to do the same thing now. I mean, when I when I started writing a column, there were like 1,500 daily newspapers in the country. And I was one of four or five, I think at one time, just five black sports writers. Mm-hmm. There was Will Bond, there was Bill Roden, there was um, maybe, I think, Terrence Moore, um, uh, Brian Burwell, and I can't remember who was Rob Parker or somebody else. Um, and that was it. And so the funny thing was, you know, we would, you know, we would from time to time write about race and sports and, uh, it would really, uh, get people to raise their eyebrows and cause some anger and that kind of thing. But, you know, we were, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's what we brought to the table that was different from what everyone else did. We could write about whether or not the coach was any good, you know, whether or not a player should be traded, you know, whether or not there was a bad call that cost a game or decided a win. Um, but we also wrote, I think, unflinchingly about, you know, these thornier issues around the game. So now that you are affiliated, when did Around the Horn start for you? Um, right at the uh, right at the beginning. Um, I wasn't on the, I, can't, I think, like about, I think maybe a couple, three months after it started, I got my first uh, rotation. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, man, that was that was weird. I mean, when the show <laughs> first started, I was like, "Man, do not hit your wagon to this thing because it is not going to last long at all." And here really? we are. I don't see. I never saw the Max Kellerman years. I definitely I didn't own a TV in college, and I didn't have time, so I didn't watch any television. <laughs> Um, you didn't and then, have a TV in college. No, mm-mm. you went to college in the nineties. Yeah, I didn't watch TV. <laughs> I didn't watch TV. I was too busy. My, I, we had we had two common area TVs. No, right. one. So I live with my uh, I live with my fourteen roommates, junior senior year, in a big house, and we ah, had a common okay. we had a common area TV on the second floor, and then a, my one friend Jana like had a TV and HBO, so we'd all go in there oh, to watch Sex and in the HBO. City. Yeah, it was big wow. time. Um, but that was it. I literally. Didn't watch any television, and I wasn't watching any sports. All I did was track, homework, party, sleep, <laughs> go to class. I think I missed two classes my entire four years of college because I'm a nerd. I love school. Um, that is great. Yeah, yeah, but I just didn't have time to watch TV, so I moved out to L.A. not that long after, and that's when I got hooked because I was working at Fox Sports, and, ah. uh, and my schedule was such that I could watch it every single day before I went to work. Right, um, right, right. And so by then, though, it was it was it was already the reality years. So I missed the beginning. Why would you think it was a train wreck? <laughs> just because it was um, it it just seemed so different than anything that was on TV. That's why. Not because it was poorly produced or anything like that, but it just I mean, it was just just think about it back then, just all over the place. Five voices all over the place. Rapid fire through. Um, and it was pre-embrace debate, right? Today. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And it just seemed like it was just like, wow, this is this is way crazy. And uh, uh, but it just it grew, 
and um, and it is amazing the variety of people who watch that show. Like you know, you get the high school kids and the college kids. You know yep. that. Yep. But I mean, there are people I I bump into randomly, and I'm sure it happens to you now, who are older and in some profession that wouldn't seem to lend itself to watching a TV show at oh, yeah. 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they're all into it. They, mm-hmm. they can't believe it. I remember I used to go on um, Fox News Sunday from time to time, and all Chris Wallace would want to do is talk about the, uh, face, the FaceTimes on the show. It's like, how long does it take you to write those? Well, I don't actually write them. <laughs> what? You don't write those? No. Those were, when do you know you're going to do it? Uh, about five seconds before before we start. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, and uh, and even overseas, you know, when the, the show's been on in uh, the U.K., um, uh, and I think it was on in Australia for a while. It may still be. Uh, but even over there, people would, a couple people every now and then would recognize you. And oh, yeah, it's still on over there. I get messages from people in Australia and New Zealand. Oh, you do? There yeah. you go. Yeah, it's, it's still huge. On. It's big. Huge. Did you want to do TV when they reached out to you, or was that a surprise? No, that was, that, was a, that was a surprise, although I used to do TV irregularly in um, Chicago um, because a Chicago reporter uh, had a relationship with a show that I can't remember what station it was on, but it would come on at like literally like 1 o'clock in the morning. It was one of these public service shows. It was called, I think it was called Everyman. And they would, there was a host, and they would do um, uh, a program on uh, just like issues in the city, right? And when the Chicago Reporter would come out, whoever wrote the lead story would go on this show for like 30 minutes and sit down and be grilled by the host about the importance of their story. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was pretty cool. And you People were, you were down for that, though, because you were like, I got this. I can oh, yeah. I, yeah can, I can tell you why it's important. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yes. That was really cool. And uh, you could tell some, some girl that, oh, yeah, I'm on TV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's all ties back to you being single with that bag of cash. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I wonder, you know, you're now a part of ESPN, but you're not a full-time employee. Are you sort right. of, are you beholden to the same rules when it comes to talking about social issues and politics and stuff as as some of us ESPNers are? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, um, yeah, because, uh, you know, they had that, uh, all hands on deck meeting, I don't know, a few years ago, and, you know, I actually, I'm, you know, I'm no longer a contract, uh, employee, I'm, you know, I'm actually an employee, so yeah, um, I am, but I kind of feel like, um, I'm also kind of grandfathered in, in a sense, because I've been dealing with this stuff, I mean, this has been, you know, a large part of my career, I deal with these issues um, on the college campus. Um, you know, I, I, I travel to I speak on panels, academic panels, where we talk about this kind of stuff. I've written uh, a couple, um, three uh, academic journal articles where you deal with this kind of stuff. So, um, and, and also I try not to be, I mean, I try and be as cognizant about the seriousness of these things as, as possible, I try not to be flippant about them. Not that I'm saying right. other people are, but you know, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I try and deal with them in serious ways. So I haven't really, I haven't really run into any 
Right. You're not taking personal with, shots. You're trying to no. have real conversations, which yeah, exactly. are usually exactly. uh, usually okay or considered okay. Does it feel to you like the way we talk about this stuff has changed in a way that uh, because we are having a, a lot more difficulty having actual discourse, it, it's just yelling at each other and presuming that everything that's a social issue is quote-unquote politics makes it right. harder, well, I mean, even if you're approaching it the same way, everyone else just isn't? Well, I mean, the trajectory of all of this is it's gone from not being dealt with at all to now being dealt with. And there may be a lot of yelling and screaming and misinformation, um, but there's also a lot of good information. I mean, I've written my displeasure with the national anthem in sports for a long time and for a long time i was the i was literally the a voice in the wilderness and now you know the last the last year all manner of people are writing about it talking about it um the significance of it the history of it uh how it got involved in sports um, what it means, um, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think I, for the most part to me, it's, it's even though there's a lot of yelling and, and screaming, is good. I mean, yeah. I'll take that discourse over no discourse. Over ignoring it, yeah. Which, yep. What do you think is the biggest change in how we cover sports from when you started in 81 till now? Uh, the biggest difference? Um, probably that we just cover with a lot more opinion. I mean, it was, you know, time was when opinion was the the purview of the columnists. And uh, because of the advent of the Internet, <clears throat> um, now uh, the opinion is the purview of no one except for everyone. Right, so that's, right. that's, a, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge difference. And then, um, and then you know, there's been a, just a huge rise in snarkiness. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, to some aspects can be entertaining, um, and then in other aspects can just be snarkiness. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you wonder why sometimes athletes or coaches, um, people you really need to talk to don't want to deal with you, and it's because um, they feel that they're constantly burned or ridiculed. Yeah, it can be borderline um, cruel guy. instead of just right. snarky, right. right? Right, right. Even though you know, sometimes you can, you know, you can separate it and say, well, you know, the people who are doing this aren't really legitimate, blah blah blah. But as long as you're getting clicks, um, that's legitimate enough. Yeah. So I think that's that's the other thing that's, that's changed a great deal. Yeah, the, the, there's an issue too now. With of course, it's interesting to to listen to and engage with the talking head types, but the talking heads need their information from the people on the ground. So while that person whose byline that you skipped over to read the latest information from whatever team it is uh, might not matter to the average person, but they really do want to make time for Stephen A. Smith or something. Um, Stephen A. doesn't have time doing what he does to show up at practice every day and report that stuff. Right. Um, so that there needs to be an investment in that. And I think that's hard for companies right now. I, I know Fox Sports just fired most of its writers to invest more money in video. And right. you need real reporters and writers and those and those beat people to provide the information that feeds the, the talking heads like me and radio and, and whatever. Originality has been transferred from reporting to 
uh, to rhetoric, in a sense. And right. to me, that's kind of, um, you know, that's kind of unfortunate. Is there more focus on social issues now, you think, or just more voices, so more time and space for people? I think to it's both. I think it's both. There's no question there's more, there's more focus on it. Um, time was, it would just pop up when it was so obvious that people couldn't ignore it. Um, right. But now, um, you know, it comes up all the time. I mean, and, and that's why, as I was saying, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got ESPN investing in the undefeated. And that really is what it wants its bread and butter to be. Um, You have any number of other uh, websites, um, radio shows that are invested just in that. Um, You know, it used to be the pursuit of academics who looked at sports to talk about the social ramifications. But, yeah, I mean it's you know it happens on it happens on a regular basis now. I mean I use you know I use a a, a Google um, I use Google alerts to scrape stuff off the internet, yeah. and I, I get I get feeds you know twice twice a day on that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, people are talking about it a whole lot more um, uh, and covering it a whole lot more, no question. What do you tell your students about the state of journalism now, and how has it affected how you teach? Um, well, when I when I first started teaching, which was first year was two thousand and eight, um, uh, I really concentrated on print. You know, I mean, when I went to school, you either did news, you took three, one of three tracks: newspaper, magazine, or broadcast. And when I started teaching, I really concentrated on print because print was still alive and well in 2008 and digital was out there but it was it seemed to be a playground for computer geeks um but now uh it's the exact opposite i teach i teach print principles um but i teach them in a way that you apply them to digital space yeah so um, that's the the biggest thing that's you know that's the big thing that's changed as far as what I tell students, um, you know, time was I would tell them you know you have to be a good reporter and a good writer, and I tell them that now, um, but I also say you have to be comfortable with your reporting and your writing in digital space, and you have to think about like everything you write. I don't let anybody write gray matter in my class now. And by that I mean you can't turn in something that doesn't have an audio or visual component to it. Interesting. There's got to be something there. Yeah. Um, because that's the that's the world we we live in. They're not going to be writing for. They're not going to be writing for um, uh, dead trees. They're going to be writing in digital space. And the other thing is you, you got to hammer home ethics. You got to hammer home ethics. So uh, my class this year probably hates me because. Uh, after graduation, I sent them a, a piece about the story in the Oregonian about oh, yeah. uh, Luke Heimlich, the, um, mm-hmm. the the pitcher, and uh, the explanation from the Oregonian as to why they, they published that story. But the thing that jumped out to me about that story was the genesis of it. So I had this, I had this, uh, this professor at Northwestern, his name is Dick Haney, and he's a legendary editor in Chicago. And one of the things he used to tell his students and, and me was, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. 
turns out that was a phrase from the Chicago News Bureau in Chicago. But nonetheless, hmm. I attribute it to him, and so do a lot of people. And, and, and what he meant was, before you write anything, just run it through the wash and make sure it's clean. Um, because if not, there may be a story there, or the story you thought you had might not be there. Um, and so I tell, I tell my students that if you're working on a profile of somebody, I don't care if it's a profile of Mother Teresa, just run her name through the system just to make sure everything's cool. So this student, who just by chance is a Medill uh, graduate student covering uh, Oregon State for the Oregonian, was working on a profile of Luke Heimlich, who was the number one pitcher for the number one team in the country. And he just took his name just to make sure the mother who says she loves you mm-hmm. um, is, is right. And he just ran the name through the criminal system and boop, up came a red flag about this guy having, uh, having um, not registered as a sex offender um, and then what he was registering for. And it became this story, and the guy obviously um, uh, 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 extricated himself from the Oregon State team um, shortly thereafter. Um, but it's a great lesson in journalism. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a real, you know, obviously a real ethical situation for the newspaper to, to, to publish this, but I thought, I thought that their um, reasoning was, uh, was 100% sound. Yeah. So you don't sound super worried about the changes to journalism right now. Trying no, to teach, because I mean, you know why? Not... There's still a lot of good journalism being done, and you could argue in some instances even more good journalism being done um, because of the plethora of, of places. Um, you know, just out on the West Coast right now, there's that, uh, that operation called Nerd Wallet. Um, and uh, they started out as a consumer affairs sort of reporting thing, um, but they just invested in investigative reporting. Yeah. And they're having people go out and do some, some real stuff. They just hired a friend of mine from the uh, Chronicle of Higher Ed, Brad Wolverton, um, to, uh, uh, to really uh, go beneath the surface and, and, and look at some issues. So, you know, there's, you, know you, you just have to – it, there's a lot more out there it's just a lot more fragmented because there's so many places. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. And and some of the stuff gets uh, signal boosted that doesn't deserve it. It makes you feel like it's a bigger right. issue. But uh, yep. well, before you have to go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. Nobody expects it, even people who listen to my podcast every week. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Playing a saxophone. Mm, did you try? Uh, I have tried over the years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a saxophone. Right now it's in the garage. <laughs> nice. Uh, number two, what's your Desert Island album? You could only have one. Uh, Desert Island... Desert uh, Island um, album would probably be um, John Coltrane's Love Supreme. Mm, nice. Three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Ooh, that is a, that is a, <laughs> that is a tough one. Um, dead or alive? <laughs> Either. Either. Um, I'd probably say uh, Gene Toomer 
who was a uh, writer during the uh, Harlem, Harlem Renaissance, hmm. who um, really changed, like, just changed my whole idea about what is writing and storytelling and all of that. Uh, he, he was just spectacular. Very interesting. I also yeah, find it interesting yeah. how people almost always choose the same gender, whereas I think if you could switch with anyone for a day, it would be extremely useful to live as the other gender for a day. <laughs> right? Like, like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> yeah, but women get, get so yeah. much trash thrown on them. Yeah. I don't want that. I mean, really, right? That's true, but you'd only have to have it for a day. And then think how great you'd feel when you went back to being a man. (laughs) Uh, Number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, The most scared, probably walking through a minefield in Mozambique towards the end of its civil war. Wow. For an assignment? Yeah, yeah. I was on assignment, and I was going going to some village that had just been pillaged. Huh. That is scary. Five, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Uh, Listening. Hmm. That's a really good one. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, Writing. No. Yeah, absolutely. Why? Why? You're never as good a writer as you... you, Anytime I write, anytime I read what I've written... I always wish I could have done it better. I always yeah. see something that's like, oh, why did I say that? Or why didn't I turn this <laughs> phrase? Why did I use that word? Why don't I use this word? Right. Uh, or you read the, uh, that person that's so great that you're like, why do I even try? It's just right, like, throw exactly. my computer out the window. <laughs> exactly. That's like Gene Toomer. I, I, read, yeah. I was like, you know, I mean, he's not a journalist, but I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> what yeah. am I yeah. doing? We got to work on that. Imposter syndrome is what they call that. Yeah. Uh, and finally, seven. What three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? He was thoughtful. He was thoughtful. Yeah, Very good. That. Thanks so much for making time for me, Kevin. Cool. It was good. Have a good rest of your day. It was super fun. I'll do it. And uh, when I'm up in Chicago, uh, I'm a, I'll actually be in Chicago. I don't know if you're around, but I'll be up there in August. Yeah, so, for sure. I'll be around. Yeah. You can come to my uh, Ferris Bueller themed birthday party. Huge! <laughs> I'll yeah. take the day off. That's right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let me know when you're on for sure. Peace. Right. Oh, and another thing. Today's "That's What She Read" comes yet again from my mother, clipping something off and mailing it to me via snail mail, which I've mentioned before in the pod is a very endearing and adorable thing she does, and she keeps sending me good stuff. And this is a piece from the Wall Street Journal by George Will, writing about. Keith Law, ESPN senior baseball writer and analyst, and his new book. You can find it on thewallstreetjournal.com. The title is The Game You Knew Is Gone. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of it because I think you should read it chronologically as it's intended, the sort of arguments that Keith makes in his book about why old statistics and ways of looking at talent and accomplishment in baseball uh, need to sort of be left behind. So I'll let you guys read that, but I'll just read a bit Um, uh, some of it from from near the top. Keith Law, senior baseball writer and analyst for ESPN, is a member of the growing cohort of exasperated baseball analysts who persuasively argue against what they consider the bewitchment of the sports intelligence by outdated or ill-considered metrics. The title, and especially the subtitle of Mr. Law's book, Smart Baseball, the story behind the old stats that are ruining the game, the new ones that are running it, and the right way to think about baseball indicates he did not get the memo recommending intellectual tentativeness. 
In today's garden of baseball journalism, the flora includes many practitioners who are not shrinking violets. And Mr. Law himself is a human cactus with a prickly impatience regarding those he considers slow learners. And it goes on to talk about all sorts of ways in which we incorrectly validated folks for statistics that perhaps uh, were undeserving because they were the result of their teammates' accomplishments and the ways that we're looking at it now. Really interesting, even if you're not super into baseball, but especially if you are. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.